dive it is. Thank you, Dave. When our kids were little and we would uh, read them a uh, bedtime story often before they went to bed, which, by the way, if you don't do that as young parents, that is something great to start to do. Just get, uh, find out from our children's ministry people, Lisa or, uh, or Kelsey or Pastor Dave. Uh, find out a great Bible story uh, book. It's a great way because it gets them wound down a little bit, usually. And because it fills them with the story that we want them to live in, God's story. Uh, so do that. Sometimes, though, it doesn't get them wound down. It gets them wound up. Uh, because when we'd read them a story, uh, one, there, there was this period of time where I'd say to them, so what Bible story would you like me to read today? And our son would put his hands together, get a smile on his face, Jonah and the whale. Jonah and the whale does not get them calmed down. But that's the story we're coming today. Take your Bible app, and uh, if you don't have one, just download it right now and turn to the book of Jonah in the Old Testament, little four-chapter book, Towards the end of the Old Testament, Jonah and uh, chapter 2. We saw last week, this story of Jonah has actually a much more central place in our story and in God's story than it might seem for a little four-chapter book. Uh, the book of Jonah was read every year during the most significant festival of the Jewish year when everybody would come to Jerusalem together. And it was read out loud. And at key points in the reading, and it would seem to me it would be that at the end of every scene, uh, basically every chapter, the reader would stop and all of the people would say, we are Jonah. This story is not just the story of one prophet. This is the story of all people who are called by God to be his people, which hopefully that's all of us. So where did we leave Jonah? At the end of scene one. We left Jonah in midair, actually, or perhaps just hitting the cold, dark, raging sea. Jonah has told the, store, the, the sailors in this boat that the storm that they're experiencing, like they've never experienced before, it's all his fault. Verse 15 of chapter 1, they don't need to throw their stuff overboard, just throw him overboard. Let him die, and it'll be all back to normal again. The sailors don't want to do it because they're scared that even though... This was a thing between Jonah and his God. If they throw God's guy overboard, God's going to turn on them, and they'll die. But they're going to die anyway. So they risk it, and they throw him overboard. Verse uh, 15, they took Jonah, threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. And scene one ends with this editorial comment that sort of just puts a bow on, on wraps it up, puts a bow on one of the threads of the story which we have to read because it's important for today's episode, verse 16. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to the king. These sailors have an authentic encounter with the real God. You've got to remember this last line. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Jonah has resisted the word of God that came to him. He didn't even bend a knee when God pursued him. Jonah gets what he deserves. And in the process, pagan sailors discover the powerful love of an awesome God. And 
It would almost seem as if the story could end right there with a big lesson. You dare obey God, or else you're going to get what you deserve, your culture, right? But as we know, that's not the end of the story. Jonah thinks it's over. He knows he deserves to die, and he's going to get what he deserves, but God cannot leave it there. And he pulls off what is perhaps the greatest search and rescue drama in all of history, Jonah and the whale, or better, Jonah in the whale, because that's where most of this drama takes place. God still cares about Jonah. He's got bigger fish to fry, but he still cares for one wayward prophet. Folks, some of us are sitting here today going through the routine, trying to make it look good on the outside. We're doing the right thing. But just hanging in there, maybe. Not really living all in. And we have come to believe that God's gone on to bigger things and we're just going through the motions. We know we're not perfect, and at some point we probably didn't cut the grade, but this episode, scene two in the book of Jonah, that we are about to enter is the test. God cares big time. He cares way too much to let us go and goes to great lengths to bring back even those who have deliberately or perhaps just subtly and slowly drifted away we are Jonah, right? The big question as we go into episode 2, chapter 2, is with this rescue, does Jonah come back into an authentic relationship with God? Does he finally come back home? The main we are Jonah question we need to process as we listen to this story is am I really authentic in the way I am doing God today. And to process that, this episode forces us to answer two sub-questions. Number one, and that's which we're going to structure our time around this morning. Number one, what is it that God uses to get us to the point of being authentic with Him? And number two, what is it that God wants to show we are authentic with Him? Will you think about those as we read? It begins, scene two actually begins at the end of chapter one, verse 17. But the Lord commanded a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, but I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains, I sank down. The earth beneath me barred me in forever. But you brought my life out of the pit. O oh Lord, my God, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. 
But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it puked Jonah up onto dry land. So, what in the world is God doing with Jonah? What is God using to bring Jonah back this time? Why the fish? Now, before we actually process that, we need to talk briefly about the elephant in the room. Did this really happen? Was there literally a a fish or a whale or some big sea creature that swallowed Jonah up, literally? Can I really believe that? And, And of course, could Jonah have stayed alive, really, for three days and three nights in a big fish? Now, we have, to, we have to recognize, as we did last week, that this story is, is presented as being literal. Jonah is introduced as a real person, the son of Amittai. They can check it up in the records. And there's nothing about this account that would indicate in any way that it's just a parable or a metaphor or something. The fish story is as real as a storm story, okay? So how am I supposed to believe that? Well, it seems to me the, the key to that is the insight my friend came to as he was struggling with accepting literally the miracle of the virgin birth. He was a mechanical engineer, an engineering professor at university, a German mechanical engineering professor. Can't get much more skeptical than that. He's, he, he really wanted to believe in the idea of God, and he, he, he actually got it that Creation required a creator. He was an engineer. He got that. It made sense. And and he loved the enthusiasm and the authenticity that he experienced in our church, but he just could not get his head around that that the Bible was literal. The stories in the Bible really happened. And he had questions. I mean, he had lots of questions. He took the Alpha course six times with all his questions. And his watershed hang-up was the virgin birth of Jesus. He struggled with that for several years. And then one beautiful, clear, starry summer night, he was walking his dogs out on his big acreage on the riverside. He took a break, sat on a stump, and looked at the beauty of the stars and took in the vista view around him in the moonlight. And just like that, it came together for me. And the way he put it is this. I suddenly came to see that if I could believe there was a God who did all this, who set this all in motion, I already did believe in a God who could do anything, including the virgin birth. You see, if I believe that Jesus actually did spend three days and three nights, like Jonah, in the heart of the earth, in the grave, and literally dead, can I believe, can I not believe that God did that with Jonah? Now, I also think that's where we just need to stop. I can't see that it adds anything to try and prove that there's a fish somewhere that could swallow a human, to try to demonstrate that it is biologically possible to stay alive in the belly of the whale for three days. See, the whole point is this, is that it's a miracle, which God can do. And Jesus made a comparison between Jonah's three days and three nights and his own death and resurrection. God pulls out all the stops with Jonah 
and pulls off a miraculous search and rescue effort for one wayward prophet. That's the point. So let's talk about how God brings Jonah back. Last week it was a storm, and and we had to come to terms with the fact that God does send storms in our life to get our attention. Not to punish us, but to show how much he is pursuing us and that he's always there ahead of us. Pursuing us. Today it's a big fish. Why a big fish? What's God doing with the fish? Now to understand that, we have to see something about how, journey, uh, how Jonah's journey away from God is presented in, in this story. Th- there's a key word in chapter 1 that we didn't look at last week. We saved it for this week because it helps us to understand what God is doing with the fish. Which direction has Jonah been going? Well, we saw one take on that last week. Jonah starts out in, in Joppa, or not, not in Joppa, but in Israel, beside Joppa. And he is told by God to go to Nineveh, right? And Jonah, instead of going to Nineveh, he runs as far in the opposite direction as it was possible for him to go in his day. That's one of the directional pieces in the story. But there's another one. What was Jonah called by God to do? If, if you have a Bible translation that's a little more literal, you'll, you'll get this. It, it's, we're told in, in verses 1 and 2 of, of chapter 1 that the wickedness of Nineveh has risen up to God and Jonah is told to get up and go to Nineveh. What does Jonah do? God says, get up, go up. Jonah goes down. Down, it says, to Joppa. And then down to the ship, and then down to the very bottom of the ship. And that word in verse 5, deep sleep, is a word that rhymes with this word down. He's still going down. And then, in verse 12, he tells the sailors, cast me down. All of you. It's what I deserve. What's God doing? saying, okay, Jonah, you want to go down? Let's be done. You and me. Think about it. The God who hurls the storm, who appoints a big fish, could that God not just have picked Jonah up and plunked him on dry land? Jonah, you and I need to talk. If he wanted to use nature like he did with the storm, could could he not have used that wind from the storm to just pick him up and whisk him to dry land and have us talk? That's about what he did. With the whale, God is saying to Jonah, you want to go down? You'll go down. He brings Jonah back. goes the opposite direction as far as he can go. God takes Jonah down as far as he can go. And downtime with God is not some fancy pamper yourself spa retreat. And the way it's framed here, the whale is not portrayed as being provided by God simply as a way out. 
It's very clearly a consequence of Jonah's action. We know that because of what the story says. The fish did. It says that it swallowed Jonah. Now, when the people of Israel, the, we are, the original we are Jonah people, when they heard that, they would have known that this is not a good thing because they knew their story with God. The word swallow is a word they had heard before outside the book of Jonah. It's used 38 times in the Old Testament story. And it is always used in the sense of experiencing a negative consequence of some action. In, in, in the book of Exodus, Exodus, a story that they probably knew better than any other story, chapter 7, in very dramatic demonstrations before great Pharaoh of Egypt, Aaron's rod swallowed up the rod of Pharaoh's magicians. In Exodus chapter 15, the, the, the Red Sea swallowed up the Egyptians. The book of Numbers chapter 16 describes an incident that is referred to as a warning several times in the Old Testament how the earth separated and swallowed up those leaders that rebelled against God. Folks, swallow is not a good thing. In having the whale swallow Jonah, God is setting the stage for a reminder to his people, you want to go down? God's ready to be down. God won't stop you. He might just let it happen, and it won't be pretty, and God might just allow you to go down further. He might even take you down. Has God ever taken you down? I'm sure it wasn't the first time God took me down, but the first time I allowed myself to process down with God was a four days and three nights experience, flattened my back as a 22-year-old in an intensive care unit in a Toronto suburb, thousands of kilometers away from home. I was the only one conscious in that ICU, and the only sound in the room was the ominous, annoyingly consistent rhythm of respirators all around me. All day long, all day long. Four days and three nights is a lot of time to think for someone who can't sit still. I had answered what I thought was God's call for me and left a good-paying job as a steelworker in northern B.C. with a, an invitation for a promotion if I would stay to become a youth pastor. I felt somewhat out of my league as a small-town redneck working in this somewhat upscale bedroom community between Toronto and Hamilton, but, but I'd been at this church as an intern for a summer, and they wanted me back. They had taken a risk on me. I knew that. And I was going to prove that I could do it. I threw everything I had into it, which is the only way I know how to do anything, by the way. I'd been there only six weeks when I got a spontaneous, unexplained flash of vomit. They put a tube in my chest. And in those days, they used a bit of suction, like a little bit of a vacuum cleaner, to help suck the air out of the chest cavity as the lung began to heal. And the only place they had the technology to do that was the ICU. So here I am, plenty of time to think and process this, alone. Nobody else conscious around me. Nobody could come into the ICU except a family and a pastor. I had no family, and the pastor with whom I was working came in once a day. But other than that, me and God... second day of my downtime, the pastor with whom I was working came in, and I remember feeling like 
There he was, spending time with me when I was supposed to be crawling my way to the top of a hill. And so I expressed my frustration with being laid up by, I don't know how long I did it, but basically it was a how could this be happening to me thing. I wasn't mad at God. It's just that I was healthy. I was in shape. My body had never failed me. After listening to my rant for a while, he said to me something like this, Mel, you've been talking a lot about how this shouldn't be happening to you. You're in good physical shape. Just six months ago, you were winning a national championship in basketball. Two months ago, you were throwing steel around. You've been talking a lot about your health, your own physical ability. I don't know, he said, but could it be that God's got you here to help you realize in a new way that it's not about what you bring to the table? It's not about your strength. And I believe he quoted the prophet Zacharias right by him. At least what, that's what I remember processing for the rest of my downtime. Not by your might, not by your power, not by your wisdom, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That's what I believe. By the way, I can tell you this this way, but I get a powerful side benefit out of that downtime. If you, if you want to ask me about it later, I'll tell you. You see, Jonah's posture before God was chin up requirement. I know better for me. I know better that what's good for me is for you, God. And I know what the people of Nineveh deserve. And so when God told Jonah to go up, Jonah goes down. God says, okay, let's go down all the way down. Do you have a problem with a God who does that? Almost every great leader for God in the Bible, was first taken down by God. Abraham, Moses, David, all did bow down to God. Why? How about Jacob? Remember Jacob? Jacob is a classic. The, the, the taking down process for Jacob took actually a long time. He was forced to run away from home. He experienced years of mistreatment from his father-in-law, and finally he's forced to go back to his original run-away-from-home experience and he was prepared for it to be a violent encounter for with, with the brother that he had screwed big time. And on the eve of that meeting, Jacob has an encounter with God, which leads to this all-night wrestling match, literally, until the angel, or was it God himself, touches him on the head and gives him a label from which he never recovers. And that is the end. Why does God take us down? this God died for passion in my heart. What did the Apostle Paul say? A man with a lot of brilliance. He threw his life into everything he had. Paul says, I will boast in my weaknesses as your strength is perfected in and through me. He did not consider property, equality with God, something to be hung on to, but he came down. He became a human, and as a human, he took another step down, became a servant. And not just a servant, he took the step down of dying 
and not get any death, but to have humiliating death, possible death on a cross for you and me. And because of thou, God lifted him up, took him to the highest place, and gave him a name that's above every name. Because Jesus did down for you every down that God takes you on, if you use it to be down, to be humble before God, See, down is not a bad thing if in the big picture we learn to do down well. If we allow down to bring us back to God, to come under God, to come into the realm of God's life, true life. Any way you can look at your life and see that maybe God is pushing you on the down journey and you're fighting it. Maybe he's just inviting you to let go surrender into his story for you, although you can't see it yet, a much better story than you could have for yourself. I don't know about your journey, but there are plenty of times in my life where God has put me in places that I shouldn't be. Some, I, I can see how he was saying, okay, that's where you want it. I'll let you experience the consequences of it. Let's leave some down. Others, as far as I might, I don't think I deserved it. It was as far down as God took me, but whether I deserve it or not, and it's good to process that piece to it, that whether we deserve it or not, down, before God, down, with God, down, under God, is the only place where up, true up, begins. So God takes Jonah down to help him to see that going away from God always results in down much further than you intend, and to help Jonah process that going down before God is a place to begin. Are you learning to do down well? Well, let's see Jonah. Leads to the second question. How does Jonah process down? Does he do it well? Does Jonah come on board with God? Now remember, what was Jonah's big struggle? Jonah's struggle was that what God wants for Jonah is not what Jonah wants God to want for Jonah. It's our big fear, right? In coming back to God, that what God will want for me is not what I want God to want for me. So in this three-day, tight, dark, smelly, well, prison, really, how does Jonah respond? Well, on the surface of it, in his journal entries, he makes it look pretty good. Let's, let's look again, and as you read it, read it. A ask yourself, what is it that Jonah does right? Okay? What is it he's doing right? And is there something that's just a little off? Does he truly do down in his heart? Okay? Let's read Jonah's, uh, um, let's read Jonah's journal entry. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled around me. Your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again to your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains, I sank down. The earth beneath me sparred 
his sin forever because he's brought my life up from the pit oh my god when my life was ebbing away i remembered you lord and my prayer rose up to you to your holy temple those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that should be theirs but i with a song of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what i have vowed i will make good salvation comes from the lord Somebody said the belly of a fish is not a happy place to live, but it's a good place to learn. The question is, does Jonah learn? Let's see. What did he do right? Well, for one thing, under the water, Jonah finally does what the pagan sailors begged him to do in the storm. Remember? They said, how can you sleep? Get up. Call on your God. But Jonah knows that the call on God means you have to agree with God. But he let it die. Now, under the water, Jonah suddenly comes to a point of realizing, oh my goodness, I don't really want to die. And he says, in my distress, which is a word that means tightness, really, in my tightness, I called to the Lord. Okay, check. But let's take a little closer look at this journal entry. These are Jonah's words. You hurled me into the deep. So rich. Who hurled him into the deep? The sailors had hold, hurled him there because Jonah had told them to. Well, suddenly it's God's fault. Can I hear a we are Jonah? Right? You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas. The current swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. I have been banished once again. Isn't it sort of God that he's blaming for this? The engulfing water surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me forever. A lot of this journal entry, by the way, describes his panic when he, as he's starting to go under the water, right? This is the stuff movies are made of. Can't you just see the movie version of this? This long drama and tension and Jonah's every position under the water. How long, we don't know, but this whole time he's holding his breath and he's realizing he does not want to die. And then just as he's losing consciousness, there's this another feeling. I mean, we're talking tight. He feels the stomach lining of the fish pressing against him. The acidic stomach juices irritating his skin. The stench burning his nostrils. Jonah doesn't record all that. He actually doesn't record anything about inside the fish except his mental journey. But by the time he talks the fact that he's no longer just in the sea, he's in a fish in the sea, and for some reason he's not drawn, uh, drowning, Jonah finally does one thing right. He calls on God. And he does another thing right. Even though he knows swallow is not a good thing, it dawns on him how long into it we don't know. The fish is not only something God is giving him to experience the concept of going down from God. It's also the very thing that God is using to preserve his life. Jonah changes his view of the fish. Somehow Jonah learns to see in this prison that this consequence from God is, is not just judgment in a negative sense, but as a way that God is providing for him. God preserved him. He may be in the belly of a fish, but he's still alive. 
when he should be dead. Last week, the storm was not God judging him, but God pursuing him. This week, Jonah comes to see the judgment is not God's condemnation. It's God protecting, preserving, and providing for him a way to stay alive. He's seeming to learn, or is he? As he goes on in his journal, he, he does another amazing thing. Another thing right. Jonah comes back to the word of God. He, he uses the word of God that he knows well. Most of his journal entries are quotations from the Psalms. And he uses those quotations to compose a psalm of his own. That's why in your Bible, if you have it, it's sort of in, in parentheses or italicies, uh, italics or sort of a an indentation. This is the psalm that Jonah composed. A beautiful psalm, quoting from a number of the psalms. Remember, Jonah has run from the word of God, and now Jonah turns back to the word of God. That's a good thing, isn't it? You know, it, it's easy to look at Jonah's journal and say, oh my goodness, finally Jonah's praying, finally Jonah's gone back to the word of God, and now God rescues him. So Jonah prays, God answers. That's the way God works, isn't it? By the way, how, how do you determine whether a prayer is a good prayer? You know how most of us determine whether a prayer is a good prayer? By how God answers it. If God answers it the way you want it answered, it's a good prayer, right? It'd be easy to think that this is a good prayer because God answered it. Easy, but it's not as simple as that. God is gracious to us, and he brings stuff to us, even though we often don't ask with the right motive or we don't ask for the right thing. It'd be easy to think that this is a great prayer because it quotes from the Bible. But let's take a little closer look. Let's see just, just one little piece. Some of the stuff goes through the sense. Just one little piece, and you've got to see. He, he begins this prayer with a quote from, from Psalm 120. And what Jonah says is, I called out in my distress to the Lord. Literally, that, that's the word order. I called out in my distress to the Lord. Sounds good, doesn't it? Sounds like an authentic response to God. Is it? Well, yes, sort of. If you've studied other languages, or, or perhaps you speak another language, you'll know that different language, the, the, the grammar is different. D different language uses different ways to emphasize things. In the English language, your, your basic sentence structure is pretty boringly predictable. Subject, verb, direct object, indirect object, right? But in the Hebrew language, you can change the word order uh, of the sentence to have basically anything in any order. It doesn't matter. Well, it does matter. It makes sense, but it matters. Because you actually use word order to emphasize things in the Hebrew language. The most significant thing, the thing you want to emphasize is put first in the sentence. Now, with that little grammar lesson, let's see how Jonah quotes this statement from the psalmist. You know what the psalmist said? To the Lord I called out in my distress. Subtle difference, isn't it? In the Hebrew language, it's, it's less subtle. Uh, like Jonah, are, are you trying just a little too hard to make yourself look good? Remember, it's a word from the Lord that Jonah has resisted, and now we're left to wonder, is, is Jose use, Jonah using other words from the Lord to make himself look good? 
Should we be asking the question, hey, Jonah, are you missing something? Oh, yes, the whale is God providing for you. But is it something more? Might the whale not also be God correcting you? Jonah, you're using God's word so beautifully, but what about the word from God that you feel is offensive to you? Are you making yourself look too good? We can do funny things with God, with, with God words. <laughs> As I was uh, thinking through this chapter this week, I was reminded of an experience I had a number of years ago. One of the core leaders at our church where, uh, where we were part of was a, a director for a, a big government agency. Uh, he, we would often meet together Sometimes early for breakfast, which is what I liked, but he didn't like it because he wasn't his normal person. Um, quite often, I would bring lunch to his office or have coffee with him in his office. He liked me coming to his office because he wanted his staff to get to know me. Uh, I guess somehow he felt that it might be a bridge to inviting them to church. Uh, see, our pastor is a normal guy, or maybe he sees this hopeful guy like Mel. There's hope for you. I don't know. Uh, there came a time when he invited his secretary, whom I had gotten to know a bit, and her husband, to a Christmas event in our church. She was really warm to the idea, and he, well, not so much. I had been warned. In the course of the evening, I, uh, I'd been watching that table and, uh, to which we were sitting, and I walked by, and she had a big warm, uh, as, as I'm walking close, she had this big warm, hey, Mel. And uh, so I went, and then she says, I'd like you to meet my husband. I'd been observing him. And he had a very definite, this is the last place I want to be, look on his face. And it was written all over him that I was probably the last guy that he wanted to meet. But he did the polite thing, and he, he stood up, and very stiffly he reached out his hand, and, and he said, Hi, I'm Evan. And then with a tone of voice that was, I don't know, nervous or a little sarcastic maybe, or tried to be funny and identify with me maybe, he, he repeated it. He said, Evan. You should remember that. It rhymes with heaven. And then he goes, ha ha, like scored. <laughs> and then something came over me, and, and I just blurted it out, and I said, well, you might not want to go there. My name's Mel. <laughs> the reason I think about that is, is that it's so easy to think that doing God is about using the right words. One big reason people who have never been to church before are afraid to go to church is simply they're afraid they're going to be busted because they don't know the right language. And the reason other things people think church is irrelevant is because the God people they've been exposed to tend to make it all about religious language. They use words that they can't understand that seem irrelevant to them. But their attitudes and their behaviors are no different. And religious word become, words become mantras Smoke screens to hide behind. They become like, well, like Jesus put it, words we use to make the outside of the cup look good, but inside the fruit is ugly. Jonah knows the right words, and he uses the right words to make himself look good, to deflect from the real authenticity issue between him and God. What God wants for Jonah is not what Jonah wants God to want for Jonah. Jonah, are you dealing with that? Probably the most powerful statement in the book is the way Jonah wrapped up his prayer. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I 
with the song of thanksgiving. I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. What has he vowed? To go to the temple. Salvation comes from the Lord. Powerful statement, isn't it? Someone said that that last line is a one-sentence summary of the entire Old Testament story. Salvation comes from the Lord. Jonah's preaching the right message. But Jonah, that's the message you're supposed to be taking to Nineveh. Do you realize what Jonah's doing here in the context of the story? In Jonah's religious self-righteousness, he's saying, I am so much better than those pagan sailors who were calling out to their worthless idols who clung to and called out to them. And what does Jonah say? I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Remember, at this point, Jonah has no idea what happened to those sailors after he swam to the pond because Jonah was in the water. What did the sailors said? I will offer a sacrifice and make a vow to you. Jonah's trying to make himself look good, but he's really making himself look pretty stupidly self-righteous, really. And who else is clinging to worthless idols? Nineveh is clinging to worthless idols. Is Jonah perhaps making a point with God as to why he shouldn't go to Nineveh? Hmm. Oh, Jonah is no longer going to Tarshish away from God. In a very pious way, Jonah two times in this poem has said, God, I'm turning around. I'm going back to the temple. Uh, Jonah, you have a clear word from God as to where he wants you to go, not to the temple in Jerusalem. Jonah's trying to make it look like he's turned around without really turning around. He's thanking God for his salvation. You know the psalm that I believe God is begging Jonah to record? My clicker is not clicking. Excuse me, guys. Hello. There we go. Thank you. You do not say my This is the psalm that David quoted when he was busted, by the way. You do not delight in sacrifice, so I bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you God will not despise. Can you help me out here, guys? steadfast spirit of the Lord. Do not cast me out of your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And God, create in me a willing spirit to sustain me so I can do what you want me to do. Should not that be the psalm Jonah is praying? He doesn't. As I read Jonah's prayer, I think of a man whom I've known all my life, a relative, who's pretty sarcastic when he talks about Christians. Here's how he put it to me once, and I'll ask your forgiveness right now because I'm using the language he used. He says, Mel, 
The problem I have with Christians is not whether they're right. For all I know, they may be. The problem I have with Christians is their faith in a good God. Self-righteous is what they were thinking. And the question we have as we end the chapter is, has Jonah budged even one inch from his fellow Christians? And it was the answer to that. chapter ends and the way it continues in 3 and 4 tells me this is the way we're supposed to interpret Jonah's story. Where did we start? The great fish swallows Jonah up. Not a good thing. Protection, yes, but also a sign of collective judgment. How does the chapter end? The Lord commanded the fish and it puked Jonah onto land. Just like swallowing, vomiting in the Bible is not a good thing. In both the Old and New Testaments, vomiting is a sign of judgment. Except for Jonah. In the last letter of the Bible, it's a church to which God says, I would like to speak now also to you. And God is saying, oh Jonah, 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 I've kept you alive when you deserve to be dead. I have been more gracious to you than you will ever deserve. And you still cannot extend that grace to others. As I read Jonah's prayer, I can't help thinking about an encounter Jesus had with the Jonas of his day. Who have said, we are Jonas so many times in their festivals. And listen to what he says in terms of Jonah. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Jonah type Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I've got. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast. He said, God, have mercy on me, sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified to God, before God, because everyone who exalts himself will be brought down, humbled, and the one who goes down himself will be brought up also. I always feel we don't have enough, we don't know enough to be on the inside with God. We don't know the right words. We don't know all of God's word. Folks, all you need to know is that there is a God who didn't give this world to you. He has come down. He has broken every barrier between, between you and him, and he invites you to be part of it. You don't need the right words. As a matter of fact, sometimes those who have the right words are hypocrites. Some of us are that barrier because in everything we think we know about God, we have lost the heart of God. 
And we have begun to make it about ourselves and we are justifying not responding to a clear word from God for us. Very reminiscent of Jonah, Jesus said, don't come offer your gift at an altar when you need to be making it right with someone else. Oh, I'll accept you when you come back. But there are times when it makes my stomach sick because you're not coming all the way. Very clear in God's word that we are to forgive as we've been forgiven, to extend the forgiveness that we've been given. If we do that in our marriages, we'd never have marriage separations, right? It's very clear that we're supposed to stop using harsh and angry words against each other. It's very clear that doing down means putting others above ourselves. It's very clear that obeying God means the same step to a committed marriage relationship. To turn around is to turn around. And Jonah, you are still trying to turn around those kind of things, can I tell you? But still, God is on the move with Jonah. And this puking out action actually has a little funny piece to it. My hunch is that God might even be chuckling a little bit. Very self-righteous, so Jonah said, okay, God, no more running. I'm going back to Jerusalem to the temple. God can't seem to be able to direct Jonah, <laughs> but God can direct the fish. <laughs> he can tell where to go. Where he, he, he told it to go pick Jonah up. And the way I read the story, based on what's coming next, the fish, under God's direction, takes Jonah and doesn't puke him up at Jerusalem. He pukes him up on the shore on the way to Nineveh. God wins. Yes, God's a God of grace. He's a God of grace to rank pagans who don't believe in him, but perhaps even more amazingly, he's a God who continues to extend his grace to wayward Jonas, inviting us back all the way back. Today, some of us need to hear, God, won't you come back home and take me? Return all the way, not just to church. Return to the God who loves you. Whatever you've done or maybe whatever you haven't done, God has not given up on you. Will you not give up on yourself? Because although we know we are Jonah, we can also see that you are Jonah for us. And Father, I pray that, that you would help each one of us to, to not just fake it, but come back all the way back to you, to your heart, and fulfill your call for us.